all you movie junkies and cinephiles, it's time for the SLS Cast with your hosts, Matt and Tim. Welcome, one and all, to episode 278 of the SLS Cast. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, this is the non-Toshient episode of the SLS Cast, because it turns out that, well, the number 278 is non-Toshient. No idea what that means, just thought it would be fun to say. Non-Toshient. And with that wonderful little bit of non-Toshient knowledge about 278, I have of course, I'm Matt, and coming to us all the way from sunny California would be our resident Sony employee. And this is Tim. How's it going, Matthew? Well, sir, I am doing okay. I'm still riding the high of a 4.5 for a Marvel movie from Tim. I, you know, it's a high that has lasted a week now. Yes, it's a good high. It is almost <laughs> as baffling as when your asparagus pee lasts for more than three days. <laughs> you know, that means you're actually allergic to asparagus, right? No shit. Seriously? That is actually what it is. So uh, for those of you who have always wondered, if your pee smells funny or smells extra strong after you've eaten asparagus, it's because... Yeah, it's awful. Yeah, it's because you are allergic to asparagus. And it's something like 40% of the population or something has that thing where their body is technically allergic to asparagus, and that's how you can tell. So if your pee does not smell funny after asparagus, then congratulations. Otherwise, yeah. I, I know I don't have asparagus very often, but I love asparagus. So I just understand that this is what's going to happen, and I eat it anyway. So, like, does it do? Are there any other health issues when eating asparagus? If you're not like, that I'm if aware you're not, of. no, not that. So, I'm... if you're if you're not allergic to it, it doesn't give you any added, except boasting. Correct. Yeah. Except... I, I mean, I don't know how many people go walking around after you know they've peed from asparagus. Well, my pee doesn't smell after asparagus. Ha ha ha! I don't know how too many people that admit to their pee smelling funny after asparagus either. But hey. We're two of them, so there there are tens of us, Tim. Tens. The SO uh, last night made huge, huge fucking asparagus. Well, if there's multiple, is it asparaguses or asparagus I? I don't know. I, I usually just say asparagus. It usually works. For she made a lot of large, many stalks. There you go. Asparagus. You could say many stalks of asparagus. Yeah, the stalks were huge, and I think it's making my my urine potent. Um, I, I I think I could kill foxes with my <laughs> asparagus pee. That's pretty funny. Yeah, although I am reminded of the nice guys, right? Is it the night? Yeah, the nice guys. When they're going into the party where Russell Crowe is, or actually Russell Crowe's not there, Ryan Gosling and his daughter are going to that Hollywood party or whatever. And I'm reminded of when these two girls are walking out and you just hear the girl randomly say, I told him I didn't mind trying it. I just don't want him to do it after he's had asparagus. And I'm like... They just made a fucking golden shower joke. Holy shit, that was amazing. So, yeah, there's your... <sighs> Only if I heeded that warning. <laughs> so, life's still good for you, sir. Life is grand, can't complain, other than my pee smell. So if all is good in your world, then all is good in mine? You want to just jump right into the nitty-gritty and get to our did-it-age-well? 
Ooh, yes. Then here we go, folks. Did it age well? Did it age well? Did it age well? I'm only three and a half years old. Anyway. <laughs> and this time on Did It Age Well, we're covering 1987's The Witches of Eastwick. In the quiet town of Eastwick, where nothing ever changes, three beautiful women are about to discover powers they never dreamed they had. Who should we be looking for? He should be really handsome. Nice eyes. Now, the man of their dreams is here. Jane, last we meet. To stay for a spell. Who are you? Just your average horny little devil. With the witches of Eastwick. We could do things you haven't any idea. <laughs> you know what's going on up in that house? She says she sees the devil here in Eastwick. If you were the devil, would you come to Eastwick? Oh, I don't know. Are you going to seduce me too? Women. A mistake. Or did he do it to us on purpose? <laughs> Jack Nicholson. Cher. Susan Sarandon. Michelle Pfeiffer. The Witches of Eastwick. Hocus Pocus. That's right. 1987 American comedy fantasy film based on John Updike's novel The Witches of Eastwick from 1984. It's directed by George Miller. And the film stars Jack Nicholson, Cher, Susan Sarandon, Michelle Pfeiffer, and the foil played by Veronica Cartwright. So what we have here are three women who are all single women two of them single moms, uh, find themselves without husbands for various reasons, death, divorce, or abandonment. I still feel like I'm being unfaithful, though, even if I just think about it. Suki, Monty left you, he deserted you, and left you with five kids. Six. 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 Well, I mean, what is it with you two? I mean, her husband leaves her because she has too many kids. That's his problem. You're oversimplifying. Yours leaves you because you can't have any. You are definitely oversimplifying. It's not the point, okay? What I'm saying is it's not your fault. It's not whose fault it is. We're just saying it's not that easy. Well, I think we're a little young to just lock it up and throw away the key, you know? I mean, it's not natural. What are we doing with ourselves? Ozzy's dead. I loved him. He's dead. Does that mean that I have to spend the rest of my life having drinks with you two every Thursday night? No, well, I like our Thursday nights. It's the only time I get to, you know, really relax. Sure. Quilting, macrame. What did we do last Thursday night? Chinese aphrodisiac cooking. Fabulous. Stimulating. I mean, we're not relaxing. We're hiding. They inexplicably are able to call to their quiet New England town. Well, I don't know if it's necessarily the devil, but uh, probably a demon-esque person by the name of Daryl Van Horn, played by Jack Nicholson. All right. Who should we be looking for? Somebody nice? Somebody you could like? Somebody with a brain? Somebody you could talk to? Someone you could really be yourself with. Yes. Someone to watch over me. <laughs> all right, all right. I've had it with you two, okay? Well... <laughs> <sighs> We definitely have to be from out of town. Mm. 
Well, especially considering what's in town, Janie. A stranger, that would be interesting. A tall, dark prince traveling under a curse. In Eastwick. Mm. Romantic, a, a foreign prince on a big black horse. <laughs> All right, no, no, okay. If we're going to have it, let's have it all. Uh, upon his arrival, it definitely seems that these women are able to work together to create magical doings. There is, however, one woman in this small town who is played by Veronica Cartwright, and she definitely is the only one who seems to be on to what is happening there at the home that Jack Nicholson has bought, or Daryl Van Horn. Oh, look around you. Look around you. You see what's happening. Not down in our very homes. You know, you know who I'm talking about. You know, you know what's going on in that house. There is violence. There's shamelessness. All right. Comforting <laughs> with that devil. She's fine. She's okay. She's good. Uh, no. Drugs. Drugs are this. Murder. Rape. Incest. Spanish flies. Dildos. Anal intercourse. And, um, shenanigans ensue, as they say. Honestly, for me, in short, I would say yes. The Witches of Eastwick absolutely has aged well. I think that there are definitely some very real 80s sensibilities in here, late 80s sensibilities. Quite obviously are the clear use of vignettes for certain aspects of the scenes. When things come to an end and there is a complete tonal shift. It's almost as if that package of scenes or vignettes will end on musical cue and shift, then creating a new entry to a next point of the movie. And uh, this is done in lots of different ways. It's something that is definitely pretty unique to the 80s. Transitions in the last 20 years, really, getting on to really 25, have really started to become very, very naturalized and very subtle for the most part. And it's something that, to a certain degree, I miss the simplicity of of the clear signal saying, okay, we're done here, and now let's pick back up over this way. Yeah, and so it's it's great. I think that um, you're definitely hearing... I need to look something up because I totally forgot to do that. Do you happen to know, Tim, offhand, when Beetlejuice uh, came out? Uh, it was around that time. Around 1988. Yeah. Yeah, 1988. And was it just me? Now, granted... The music in Beetlejuice is by Danny Elfman, whereas the music in Witches of Eastwick is by John Williams. Sure. I, I kind of got a John Williams feel of like if John Williams had scored Beetlejuice, that's what Beetlejuice would have sounded like.
I'm not saying Danny Elfman ripped off John Williams because clearly these were pretty much in production at about the same time. But I don't know. I really kind of got a feel like it's almost as if this style of movie almost was genre specific with the type of clashing tones and, you know, the dun 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 you know, kind of the feel and the bounce. Um, sure, and heavy. And a little bit of the off-kilter. like string plucking yeah yeah and it go ahead sorry oh no 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 i was gonna definitely agree with you but i kind of also think that type of music was popular for movies like these dark comedic films at that time i mean even look at the burbs you know scrooge that's true which was also done by danny elfman that movie that music was still pretty popular this one i think is definitely different but it's more orchestral. There are more components to the music. Mm-hmm. Whereas with like Beetlejuice, you definitely remember the or the the violin. Is it a violin or cello? I don't, I don't remember what the fuck it was. But do you have that? You know, in Beetlejuice, like the Beetlejuice theme. You know, whenever mm-hmm. it's that really sly mischievous sound yeah sure you know i i I don't know i I think maybe this score works better as a whole whereas there are a bunch of bits and pieces of danny elfman's score that definitely come out to be more memorable yeah and so i mean there's definitely a lot of aspects to the film that are like that one thing that i noticed is that while the film on i feel like the film on the whole has aged well and there's just great performances all the way around i will say though that it seems that basically the third act of the movie when the girls realize that daryl isn't exactly as wonderful as he's cracked up to be it almost is kind of like it just kind of devolves into silliness for the sake of silliness instead of it actually being something you know a little bit more compelling and thrilling while at the same time trying to be funny uh some people i've read online about i read online that that basically that there was a method behind that madness they were really trying to showcase the comedic sensibilities of of jack nicholson which is why they were kind of they let the craziness go on like that but at the same time, I don't really think they needed to do that with the movie because you get to see the you get to see the comedic timing of Jack Nicholson very early on because Daryl has two very distinct modes. He has boisterous and he has that kind of boisterous overbearing side which is meant to be revolting but at the same time funny you know very loud mouth braggadish and you know when he's like talking about how he feels that men are stupid and you know they should be more like women and stuff like that um and he does the same thing to all three girls he does it most hard-pressed to share at the beginning at lunch <laughs> what is it that you think you're doing direct with you as I know how. I thought you might appreciate it. And um, anyway, I always like a little pussy after lunch. What do you say? Hmm? Uh, are you trying to seduce me? 
dream of seducing you, Alexandra. I wouldn't insult your intelligence with anything as trivial as seduction. But uh, I would love to fuck you. But then he has that darker, smoother side that he comes through where he really simply grabs you. And you can see it's designed to showcase exactly what Daryl really is and how he manipulates, which is great. But you've already got that balance. That balance has already been struck and it works really well. So what's the point in having the diatribes at the end of the movie for Daryl just at the just for the sake of it having something reactionary to all the craziness that's going on with the girls plotting against him. So I really, really enjoyed the movie. And it has been, good God. So the movie came out in 1987. Clearly it's 2018 now. And uh, so it's 31 years ago. Um, But God, I want to say it's been over 20 <laughs> since I've seen it. Pretty sure it's been over 20 since I've seen this movie. And I, I don't know. I guess maybe it just, I was in the right mood when I was watching. I just... I really had a great time with it. Um, I think it's got, uh, some points where, uh, the, the magic or the mysticism involved to give you the sense of the witches, um, is never fully realized. It's just kind of meant to be more or less an unexplained event. Like what, as they move to the next important part for character development, it's just supposedly taken for granted that the, granted that the women it's not taken as a piece of rock. <laughs> it's taken for granted that um, that the, that the girls are coming into their own in terms of their powers. These women, you know, are suddenly realizing that they're witches. Um, and yet, I think that that's something that should have been touched on a little bit more. That they understand what is happening to them, um, and not just that there is this understanding but they understand why um, not more or less that they just kind of stumble along and just go with the flow as Daryl kind of brings it out of them. And I think the two points that this, that it really gets brought to the fore are when uh, number one, when Felicia uh, Alden, who is played by Veronica Cartwright, Cartwright, she actually uh, dies in the movie and it's, as a direct result of what these girls were doing, as the, what the women were doing. Does she actually die? Oh, yeah. Because Richard Jenkins, he plays Clyde. He kills her. That's what he's like. It's time for the, you know, it's time for you to stop. You know, it's time for you to stop. And then they cut away. And all you can hear is the big fire poker going bonk, thunk. He's beating her over the head and killing her. Oh, wow. You know, I guess I never really caught that. And so, because that's what they're like. She died. A woman, you know, our friend died. Oh, okay. Oh, well, so. see, and I guess I never really caught that because... Especially going into the third act, I, I really, I mean, it felt like they did a lot of reshoots. I I would agree. Something happened because there's the other part where that comes into play. Like I said, there's, there, there's in order to focus on the characterizations of where these women are coming from in their own individual, they also skip like Jack. Uh, so Daryl says something, says some word. I can't remember the name of the word, but whatever the word was that uh, Daryl utters is on the name of this book. This basically it's like a spell book that the women grab and they use that to create the voodoo doll. 
And I'm like, well, how did they even know what that was, let alone where it was and why it would and that it was a spell book? Exactly. You know, so, right. Yeah. I'm like, and all, and the only clue that you would have known is if you remembered that the the name on the spell book itself is something that Daryl says at about halfway through the movie. And it's like Farnim or something like that. I can't remember what the word was. And I'm like, I and again, it's at that point it starts devolving kind of into chaos. Um, and so that's where I kind of felt the movie didn't need to do the things that it was doing there. But on the whole, it was still great fun, and I really did like it. So I would say that it aged well. What do you think, sir? I find it pretty funny how this is the movie that George Miller made in between Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome and Lorenzo's Oil and Babe Pig in the City. <laughs> <laughs> Proof that he is a director of all genres. Yes, I get, but but mostly Mad Max, mostly Mad Max. But um, <laughs> true, mostly Mad Max. I, I think I think The Witches of Eastwick is a wonderful film. I think it's a great Jack Nicholson vehicle. I think it's a great uh, Veronica Cartwright vehicle, and I think it's also a great Susan Sarandon vehicle. Um, I, yeah, the movie definitely ages well. My only complaints are more movie review related. A lot of characterizations and story elements don't really match up to the film's ending or to the third the film's third act i love the set pieces i love when the magic does start happening like when when they're playing tennis is absolutely wonderful i think when they finally have that foursome or whatever And then it switches to op- the opera music. And Michelle Pfeiffer brings her kids over, I guess. And there's that, you know, hundreds of balls on the stairwell that ends up falling on top of the kids. And so the kids are playing in this mansion with all these pink balloons everywhere. Not balls, balloons. You know, so there's a lot of like beautiful and well executed shots and moments that I loved, but um, just a lot of things just didn't make sense. Like, did he have a relationship with Michelle Pfeiffer's with her character's uh, eight kids or nine kids, however many she had? We really don't know what his end game is. And that is just kind of frustrating. This is the second time I watched it within a year. And I picked up more on this stuff the second time around. I love the movie, but damn, there are quite a lot of plot elements that are faulty, that has a very unsafe structure, I guess. If this movie ever gets released on Blu-ray with a documentary attached to it, like a good in-depth documentary, it would be worth my time to in money to buy that and actually watch it because I'm very curious to know the process behind putting this movie together if in fact they had to rework a number of these scenes because of one reason or another maybe they couldn't get the right reshoots done or maybe there was something wrong with the film I don't know um but I I'd like to learn more about it but in terms of did it age well? Absolutely. It's a fun movie. It's a hilarious movie. And it's fun to see Jack Nicholson's mischievous, repulsive side let loose within a safe space. So what do you think? Women, a mistake? 
or did he do it to us on purpose? Because I really want to know. Because if it's a mistake, maybe we could do something about it. Find a cure. Invent a vaccine. Build up our immune systems. <laughs> Get a little exercise. <laughs> you know, 20 push-ups a day, and you never have to be afflicted with women ever again. <laughs> it's all within the character, and Cher really lets him have it in a great meeting scene between the two of them. Well, you know, I have to admit that I appreciate your directness, Daryl, and I will try and be as direct and honest with you as I possibly can be. Uh, I think, no, I, I am positive that you are the most unattractive man I have ever met in my entire life. You know, in the short time we've been together, you have demonstrated every loathsome characteristic of the male personality and even discovered a few new ones. You are physically repulsive, intellectually retarded, you're morally reprehensible, vulgar, insensitive, selfish, stupid. You have no taste, a lousy sense of humor, and you smell. You're not even interesting enough to make me sick. It's just, I also think Jack Nicholson begins to outshine the three women by the film's end when the three ladies, the three women should be in control and in power and have their moments. Yeah, all the way around, it does definitely age well. All right. Well, that is going to bring us to the end of Did It Age Well? Next week, we're going to be going back to the old news. Uh, so, without further ado, I guess it is time for the movies, is it not, sir? Yes, indeedy. Then here we go, folks. It's the movies. <laughs> This week's movies are Mom and Dad and Beirut. Where do you want to start, sir? How about Beirut? Let's do it. Beirut. I was raised as an only child with two people who basically hated each other just enough to stay together. So I guess you could say I've been mediating since well before I was born. Years before I heard the term mutually assured destruction, I was very familiar with it growing up in that house. Mason Francis Skiles, 45 years old. Ten years ago, he was deputy chief of mission here until his wife was killed. He's damaged goods, but he's manageable. Maybe one of you can tell me what I'm doing here. Three nights ago, an American was pulled off the street in West Beirut. Next morning, we got a communique from a group calling itself the Militia of Islamic Liberation. They have the guy they want to talk. They want you to broker the deal. They asked for you specifically. Your friend Cal, he's the hostage. Cal's the head of all Mideast operations. He talks. You'll be waiting for bodies to pile up on the embassy sidewalk. What does he want me to do? You're an experienced negotiator. Negotiate. What do you want? I will track Al Riley for the return of my brother, Rafael Borajan. Give me a meeting in Israel. Munich Olympics, Madrid, Flight 305. 46 days. All of this, Rafid Abu Rajab. Is this about you looking for the man who killed your wife? They can't find your brother. You're going to have to come up with an alternative. This is alternative. 
He's given us six hours to deliver the brother. He's hiding. He's been driven so deep, his own people don't know where he is. Right now, there's a hell of a lot of unprotected pieces in the field. Do you think they want to save Cal, or do you think they want to save the information? That's an ugly question. Clearly, the monsters have taken over Lebanon. Something needs to be done. And give Israel the keys to the city? I need to see Cal. And it's impossible. It's only impossible if he's dead. 2,000 years of revenge, vendetta, murder. Welcome to Beirut. All right. Beirut, 2018 American espionage thriller films, directed by Brad Anderson, written by Tony Gilroy. This is actually set in 1982 for the Lebanese Civil War, and it stars uh, John Hamm, Rosamund Pike, Dean Norris, Larry Pine, and Shay Wingham. All uh, right. So basically what we have here is a gentleman by the plane, name, by the plane, by the name of Mason Skiles, uh, who back in 1972 is a diplomat in Lebanon. Uh, he's just kind of, he and his wife have just started kind of taking in this, uh, young guy, uh, young teenager, and, uh, they're at a party, um, and some shit goes down regarding this kid, and, um, basically, Mason's wife is killed. Um, fast forward 10 years. Now, Skiles, of course, is an alcoholic, but he's still kind of like a negotiator type corporate kind of retreat dude. Um, who is kind of siphoned back in and sent back to Beirut um, under the guise of doing some corporate, you know, work or government work, basically, but in the realm of teaching negotiations and stuff. Uh, but his real job is to actually negotiate for the brother um, or negotiate with the brother of this 13-year-old that he initially had uh, back in 1972. Uh, and he's negotiating there in order to save his friend. Uh, this friend actually has a lot of information that the U.S. government would rather not have tortured out of this poor soul. And so John Hamm's put between a rock and a hard place, especially since Israel is involved in more ways than one. Um, shenanigans ensue, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. All right, so for me, this movie is, um, it, it, it's, it's above average in terms of spy thriller. I think it's overall very well acted. Um, I think that the cinematography is well done considering the time period that they're working with and everything. Um, and it, it utilizes the characters and the setting to kind of maximize the effect of the story as best as it can. What I think is the biggest problem with this movie is that it is just tries a little too hard to be twisty turny and in depth in the, uh, you know, in, in how the CIA and the NSA and, and uh, the PLO, all these different agencies are, you know, bickering, going back and forth and everybody's chess moving each other and da 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 da. And poor, uh, and poor Skiles is just stuck in the middle trying to do this negotiation to save his buddy and work, you know, with this kid and his brother not whatnot um and, and quite frankly it just kind of comes across as a little too much try hard um i think it's an interesting story despite it gets it getting to be a little bit too convoluted um and it's definitely like i said well acted and well shot so i give this one a 3.5 out of 5 not a whole lot more to say about it um if you're into this kind of thing then i really think you're going to enjoy it uh other than that i would say pretty much wait for this one on blu-ray or VOD. What do you got there, Tim? 
I agree with you. This is a, a movie written and I believe directed by Tony Gilroy. He wrote and directed the Jeremy Renner Bourne movie, and he wrote, I think, most of the other Bourne movies as well. So he is very much in familiar territory with this kind of movie. I'm just not sure if it actually worked out as well as what he and other critics have <laughs> think, I suppose. It's good, it's entertaining, and by the end of the movie, it works. I think it's a little bit too much in your face. I kind of got tired of hearing the same old freaking line, Welcome to Beirut. Oh, you're in Beirut. Oh, reasoning for all this outlandish, outlandish crime and, and, and shitty politics is because, oh, they're in Beirut. Oh, that's just how Beirut is. It just kind of felt cheap writing, I guess. Lazy writing. Whereas I would have liked more well-rounded characters. And if they were going to say that once, it actually pay off and add something to the story itself. Because you can already tell that the Beirut in this movie is a, an absolute shithole. Not saying that's how Beirut actually is or was during this time. But in this movie... The mood, I would never visit this place. So, you know, like we really don't need, uh, you know, any of these quips to let us know how bad this place is for this character and the things that are happening to other characters in the film. I'm not sure how, if John Hamm was the appropriate choice or was appropriately cast in this film. He does a, a great job uh, looking hungover and depressed and coming to realization about the shitty decisions he has made in life. <laughs> He's really good at showing us that in his eyes, you know. But when it comes to buying his character, I don't know if it worked as well. It just felt like another movie that Tony Gilroy wrote. Like... It was another one of those movies that has that shaky cam to give it a little bit more grittiness and maybe to provide it more realism, but it just became too obvious and noticeable to really become enveloped in what is actually happening on screen. But I mean, it's, you know, it's worth 3.5. I mean, it's a good movie. I really don't know what else to say without it being overtly or overly negative sounding. So I'm just going to end it with that. 3.5 out of 5. I agree. If you're interested in seeing it, but don't want to cough up the cashola, wait and rent it for a buck or two at Redbox. It's going to be there soon. Now, I will say this. Um, I, I was probably my fault for talking too fast, but this film was actually directed by Brad Anderson. Oh. It's written by Tony Gilroy, also produced by Tony Gilroy, along with a few other people. So... I would say that there, that the story might have been better executed if Gilroy had also directed. Oh, yeah. So oh, totally. That, you know, that, that might be why it feels so convoluted, um, in, in that regard. Um, because it, what, what was written wasn't as well executed as it could have been. Now, it could also be that, um, you know, Anderson has done, the best he could with the material that he was written. So, you know, you, you could, you could theoretically argue that one both ways, but, um, definitely there was, 
there's some kind of breakdown behind the scenes. <laughs> faux show. Faux show. So, uh, cool. Well, then that leaves us with mom and dad. Hey, uh, can I go to a movie with Riley tonight? With Riley? Your grandparents are coming for dinner tonight, remember? Awesome. Grandpa telling his disgusting Vietnam stories. Take my advice. Don't ever have kids. Everything just revolves around you, doesn't it? Yeah, whatever. What is the rush today? It's like we're waiting for a buffet. What's going on? Is that McKenna's mom? Multiple reports are now coming in of parents murdering their own children. Listen to me. We have to get out of the house before mom and dad come home. Dad? We got a 2018 American black comedy horror film written and directed by Brian Taylor. Film stars Nicolas Cage and Selma Blair uh, as parents suffering from some kind of, uh, you know, delusional, um, I guess, what, what, what are we, what are we going to call this? Uh, some, some, uh, uh illness hysteria something hysteria sure so so basically some kind of audio signal is transmitted via you know white noise and static uh that is causing parents to go completely mad with hysteria and kill their children um it doesn't really help that poor uh brent and kendall's kids are kind of shitheads <laughs> um Brent and Kendall are played by Nicolas Cage and Selma Blair re- uh respectively and Winters plays Carly Ryan the older daughter Zachary Arthur plays Josh Ryan the younger son um and yeah basically this is just an average day uh grandma and grandpa are coming into town so poor uh Kendall uh, I'm sorry, poor Carly isn't able to go out with her boyfriend, who her parents don't really like anyway. She's got to come back for dinner. Uh, while she's at school, all of a sudden this like crazy shit starts happening and parents are literally trying to kill their kids no matter what. Um, and it, and literally any form or fashion of parent is trying to kill their kids. Um, the movie is completely outrageous and over the top. It is meant to be so. Because I think this is kind of like every frustrated parent's wet dream, uh, where they could just go and, you know, like, when your kid is literally driving you up the wall, and you're like, I'm gonna fucking kill that kid. Well, this is your catharsis right here. And they know that they're, that they are being outrageous. They know that they are, um, you know, doing something completely over the top and stupid. At the same time, while the movie succeeds on this front and creates a huge 
um, and, and, you know, actually it takes advantage of its, um, huge potential for overwrought scenarios that can lead both ways to kind of be like, no, 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 I want to help my kids. But at the same time, no, 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 I must kill my kids. They, they have a great dynamic that allows for that to, to play. I, I think that, um, the movie, in certain aspects didn't know where to go and so they kind of pushed the envelope a little too far one way or the other um and it takes the the fun out of it it does however try and i think it realizes that it crosses lines not not early enough that it can prevent itself from going over these lines otherwise we wouldn't be talking about it but at the same time, it catches itself before it goes so far that they can't pull it back. And they do dial it back enough that they can allow for certain moments of dialogue to take place where you can see the, the, you can see the kernels of truth behind the, uh, behind the frustrations that these families have with all the dynamics and the dynamics even going the other way with kids being frustrated with their parents. Um, and so, they let those kernels come through. And when they shine through, the film is definitely at its best. Um, failing that, just the absurdity and the hilarity of the absurdity does make it fun. But unfortunately, sometimes it takes it too far. Um, and crossing, crossing those lines, um, despite pulling back, kind of overdoes it, uh, overplays its hand a bit. I still give this one a four out of five uh, and would recommend this. Any day of the week and twice on Sundays. If you can even get a chance to see this in the theater, um, I would say it's worth it for that. Yeah, so there you go. Four out of five. Bring us home there, Tim. Wow. You did not disappoint. I was very interested in hearing your uh, your review of this because it does have great reviews on Rotten Tomatoes um, just for the sake of, I guess, gauging the popularity of this film. Not necessarily the popularity, but the acceptance of this film critically. On Rotten Tomatoes, it is on the tomato meter. It has been deemed fresh with 73% of critics enjoying the flick. However, the audience score is 39%. <laughs> and, you know, to me, that kind of makes sense. However, I'm kind of surprised to see that 73% of critics enjoyed the film. It's wild and zany, the movie is, and the performances are wild and zany. It's fun to see Nicolas Cage let loose. Um, and the movie would have been an interesting hell of a ride if it were in different hands. I don't think I've ever seen the movie Crank. Brian Taylor wrote and directed the two Crank movies with Jason Statham. Uh, I have yet to see the show Happy that he did with Patton Oswalt and the guy's name from Law & Order SVU. His name escapes my mind, but he's in that as well. So I'm not too familiar with this guy's body of work outside of Tropic Thunder, which he produced. So I don't know if this is his shtick or not. This crazy, over-the-top zaniness and sporadic editing. You know, I get what it's trying to do. I mean, we look at Run, Lola, Run, which came out, well, about, what, 20 years ago or so? A little less than 20 years ago. The reason why that movie is entertaining and why that was such a hit at the time was because it was different. You know, the move, the pace, it, the, the movie was constantly at pace. 
and the editing was quick and it was sharp and it was breezy and it was fun. I came into that movie late so it didn't have that great effect on me like it did on all those other people who watched it around its initial release. I looked at the movie and thought, okay, well, I've seen this before in other films that I enjoyed more so. And I kind of feel that same way with this film, even though it just came out. So Mom and Dad is sporadic and over-the-top and zany, For the sake of being sporadic, over-the-top, and zany, there's no real bite to it. There's no real meat to it. There's nothing real to it. And if this movie was specifically set out to be fun and exciting entertaining, uh, that would be a different story. But that's not necessarily it. They're trying to give a little bit more of a background to uh, especially the Nicolas Cage character where... You know, he didn't have, ch- he, he misses uh, the good old days when he was young and he could just fuck women in his hot rod and dry fast and create havoc on the streets. You know, like it would have been one thing if I could relate to him in some form or fashion, not necessarily re- relate to the act of the shit he used to get himself into when he was younger, but to relate in a way of like, oh, I remember being able to do this when I was young. And then. Well, having to stop doing it because I have these shithead kids, you know, like, is he resentful because he had kids or because he had shithead kids? Or is he resentful because he is just an asshole and not a really good father? You know, so there were a lot of questions I had in that regard to where, where do these characters stand? I get that some of Blair's character, the mom, she's a good person. I just never got the idea that Nicolas Cage was ever a good person to begin with. So I just really didn't care. Kids are shitty, especially the girls kind of shitty. Yeah, so I was just waiting for this movie to really take off. And by the time I gave up on that, the movie was over. And I didn't realize that the movie really takes off within the first five seconds. And from then on out, I was never really surprised by anything that did happen. Um, there is one little gag concerning two characters who are introduced pretty later on in the movie that I thought was pretty clever. And I am not going to spoil that for those of you who may or may not check it out. However, if you're listening to this review and you're saying to yourself, you know what? I'm with Matt. You know, I I, I relate more to what he's saying. I'm going to check it out anyways. Go for it. More than likely, you'll probably enjoy it more than I did. But if you're like me, or if you're in my camp where you like movies like this, but you want a little bit more of a foundation to it, then you're probably not going to get a kick out of this one. So I am at two and a half out of five... I like the idea of it, but it's just not a really good movie when it comes down to it. That's where I stand. Two and a half out of five. I guess that brings us to the end of the movies. Next week's movies are going to be Tully, Bad Samaritan, and Borg vs. McEnroe. And, uh, yeah, I think that just brings us down to the spiel, does it not, sir? Spiel on! Today, you're wasting my motherfucking time. Listen, man, Did you fall in love? Come on. Did you fall in love last night? You went off somewhere? Vincent. Just tell me that. I'll, I'll settle for it. You know what I mean? I'll buy that. V- Vincent. 
Give me all you got! Listen. Give me all you got! I swear, man, my brother, man, my brother, my brother Richard's gonna talk to you. Man. I heard Richard. He gonna talk to you. Richard? Richard. Richard? He gonna meet you, man, I swear, tonight. He's not here, is he? No, he gonna meet you tonight. Tonight? What happened to right now? Don't waste my motherfucking time! Well, the music you've been listening to, as always, has been brought to us by our music partners, Crew Rise of Solace. You can check them out at ReverbNation.com and Facebook.com, both slash Cries of Solace. As for us, we are, of course, the SLS Cast. You can find us at SLSCast.com. You can send us an email to the show at SLSCast.com. You can follow us on Twitter at the SLS Cast. You can follow me. This is Matt on Twitter at Nitwit12345. You can, of course, come aboard that information superhighway and track down Tim on Twitter if that's your heart's desire. And, of course, you can always subscribe to us on iTunes and or favorite us on Stitcher Radio and or track us down on the old SoundCloud, as well as look us up on Patreon. And so until next week, this is Matt saying that thanks to Selma Blair, I get to say this. My first crush was Spock. I thought it didn't get any better than Spock. Take care, cinephiles, and we'll talk at you again next week. Madam, perhaps we should be going. Oh, farewell, monsieur. Thank you so much. So nice to see you. And I hope very much we will see you again very soon. Au revoir, monsieur. Thanks again for listening to the SLS Cast with your hosts, Matt and Tim. You can find us over at slscast.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at the SLS Cast. You can send us an email to the show at slscast.com. And of course, you can always subscribe to us on iTunes and or favorite us on Stitcher Radio. Thanks again for listening.